0: Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Gallagher. In today's episode, Kate Grenville on her new book, Elizabeth MacArthur's Letters, with author Jock Sarong. Together, they will discuss how interpreting letters and artifacts from the past shapes our concepts of who we are now, and indeed, how these interpretations are fallible, yet continue to shape our national narratives. Here's the host of the discussion, Readings Programming Manager. Christine Gordon.
1: Welcome to this Readings text event this Thursday lunchtime. My name is Christine Gordon. I'm the Programming Manager for Readings and I'm delighted to be welcoming our speakers here today. But before we get going, I want us to take a little moment out of our busy day to reflect that from wherever we're zooming in from and however we've got to where we are today today, that we're on land that's not ours, we're on land that's owned by the First Nations people. At the moment I am speaking from the Wurundjeri land and I think it's really important here in 2022 that we do more than send our respects to the First Nations people and perhaps given that we're all writers, that we're all readers, that we're all thinkers, that we can instead make a commitment to the Indigenous population that we will use this year to read works by the First Nations people and to take those stories and those poetries and those song lines into our conversations, into our dinner parties and our barbecues. It seems to me, given that we're all gathered here, that this would be a sensible thing to do in 2022 and surely those conversations will help make this country even greater than it is. I'd like to introduce you to Jock Zerong, someone who has uh, won awards for history but perhaps during school wasn't so famed for his history lessons. Uh, He's the author of two books, he's a crime writer, he lives down the surf Coast. He assures me that today's surf is going off, but instead he has taken time out of his busy day to talk to his friend, Kate Grenville, and we're very grateful. And if we were in the reading shop right now, there'd be tremendous applause for you coming all the way up from the beach to be joining us so that we can be surrounded by your books and Kate's books. Welcome, Jock. Thank
2: you, Chris. That was a delightful intro. (laughs) Good afternoon to all of you. My name is Jock Coxong. I'm coming to you from Gunditjmara and Pequwaring Country, and um, as Chris indicated, I'm a writer. And one of the great perks of being a writer is that you get to do things like this. I'm talking to Kate Grenville today, and good afternoon to you, Kate. How are
3: you? Oh, I'm very well. It's lovely to be talking with you and with everybody else.
2: Yes, it's great also to be talking to somebody who needs no introduction because I'm going to do a little introduction anyway, but um, you will all have your own particular loves of Kate's work. Mine, I, I came to Kate's writing through The Secret River, but of course there's the Commandant, there's the Case Against Fragrance, there's the idea of perfection, and Kate has also, you know, for us in the writing game, has written so much about the craft of writing, which is one of her great contributions, I think, to Australian letters. Kate has been in print, I think I've got this right, Kate, for 37 years, is that the case? <laughs> Probably, yes. <laughs> um, and I read this morning, a thing I didn't know, that you're a cellist.
3: Oh, look, I wouldn't call myself a cellist. I am a student of the cello. I play it, you know, adequately but not well. But I know. Okay.
2: Okay, it's substantially more than most of us.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I'm hoping it will stave off Alzheimer's because I find it really difficult and I know that, you know, you're supposed to keep the brain going with difficult stuff,
2: not stuff. So so difficult and soothing?
3: Uh, Yes, it's a little bit like yoga or something like that. When you're concentrating on doing something hard, you're just thinking, how can I get that E-flat in tune? Should I play it up there or should I play it back there? And when you stop... It's like you've unscrewed your head and taken it out for a walk and now you can put it back on. So it is not exactly soothing but it is infinitely restorative. I love it,
2: yeah. (sighs) (laughs) Um, We, of course, are together to talk about this book, Elizabeth MacArthur's Letters, and I've got so many questions to ask you, Kate, about this book that I feel like I'm going to start jabbering really, really fast to get to them all, but we'll, we'll do the best we can. As the name suggests, a collection of 65 letters spanning 60 years, from 1789 to 1849. And really interestingly, this can be seen as, I suppose, as a companion piece to A Roommate of Leaves. And and the very interesting um, observation that I think you make in the book, Kate, that the letters span 60 years. A Roommate of Leaves only spans the first 15 years of that collection of correspondence. So firstly, is that
3: grounds for a sequel? Oh, my goodness. Look, early drafts of A Room Made of Leaves did take her right up to her death, so I, I tried very hard to write all the many years that we're really interested in, which is the years she was looking after the, the sheep business when her husband was off in England defending himself in court. Look, I think there's a point as a writer where you have to look at a page of writing and say, okay, this is for somebody else to do. This is not my, not my strength. Better not to better not to try to pretend. You know when you're forcing it, I think. So I chopped all that off and I thought, okay, this is okay. I'll I'll end it at a at a point where I've said what I want to say, basically, and then I'll put a little epilogue in, which just sort of sums up the the, the rest of her life. Yeah. Well,
2: so let's let's burrow into the how of this book a little bit. Firstly, how did you know that there was the potential for a book in these letters that you had encountered? And then once you knew that, how did you devise this structure that you've got with an introduction and then the little italicised prefaces to each letter?
3: Well, I knew, of course, that there were lots of letters and as the background, I mean, the letters inspired the novel. So I, I started the book with a tiny extract from the letters that I read in actually a book by Tim Flannery called The Birth of Sydney, just a few lines and in that, she's writing about William Dawes in a way. She talks about blushing in the presence of Lieutenant Dawes. And I thought, oh, okay, I know what a blush sometimes means. So I got interested in her then from that tiny extract of her letters. And when I, four or five books later, I came back to that idea and read a lot more of the letters, which some of which are available uh, in printed form, a few of them, And some of them, you have to go to the library and photograph them and put them on your computer and try and work out how to read the handwriting. So I did that with a lot of them. And I remember feeling a bit disappointed because a lot of them have very long bits about like a local gossip and the comings and goings of her large family, very blow-by-blow stuff. So when I approached my publisher with the idea for the novel uh, based on Elizabeth MacArthur, his first question was, is there a book in the letters? And I said, oh no, don't be ridiculous. Because I had a picture of these mostly very long letters with just a few little good bits in them. So it wasn't until I had finished the book and it was out in the world and people were starting to respond to it that I thought, actually, I'm gonna go back to those letters. And if I can put aside the purest in me and carve out all the kind of rather dull bits, what I will be left with is her voice speaking for herself and having done the novel and taken such liberties with her, I thought it was the least I could do. Um, you asked about the structure. The fantastic thing about letters is, of course, the structure is there, it's chronology. So that was very simple. But most collections of letters need a bit of glossary by somebody to explain the background, who they're referring to, etc. And as I did that, I realised that I was not just going to do that, but I was also going to just indicate in a few sentences how this letter, which the reader is about to read, how that inspired the fiction, what I did with it, including where I might have, you know, got it wrong, basically. So it was, it's a kind of slightly a meta, a bit of a meta-commentary on my own reading of the letters and my unsureness. Was I right or was I wrong? I still don't know. What about the
2: looking at the actual handwriting? This is a thing that perhaps we can't see in your book. Is there an intimacy in in seeing the the scratch of the pen and and seeing what looks like emendations or the ink itself? What do you find when you look at that handwriting?
3: Yes, interesting. For the paperback, I must tell them to put a reproduction of one of the letters maybe on the back cover or something because several people have asked what do they look like. Of course, the endpapers of the novel are actually a reproduction of one of the letters. If you have the novel and you look at the endpapers, you'll see she was a farmer's daughter. She wasn't high gentry. So her handwriting is basically very functional. It's it's pretty readable most of the time. When she was younger, it was very much clearer. As she gets older, her eyes went a bit and she was often writing by candlelight. So that's that's hard. That was tricky, thank goodness, for the computer where you can put it on the thing and blow it up. So you can look yeah. at just that one problematic word because the other thing they did at that time and this is really difficult or at least I thought it would be difficult is that they did something called cross writing to save paper so she would write you know in the normal way down the page and then turn the page at right angles and write across the words she had already done so you've got this palimpsest effect and when I first looked at one of these pages I thought oh that's simply impossible But, you know, the human eye is an amazing bit of machinery. In fact, when you set your mind to it and you just click your brain into it, you can read one and then you turn the page and you read the other. There was a feeling of real uh, closeness looking at her handwriting, as there is with anybody's handwriting. There were very few corrections in the copies that I have. I mean, in the originals, in the library. She would have often made copies of her letters in case the ship was shipwrecked. Uh, So these may be copies. She may have done a rough draft. I don't know because it's now and again there's something crossed out, but it's not very often.
2: Um, I don't know the technology, but
3: is it fountain pen or pencil or what are you looking at? It's a quill. In one of her letters she talks about shaping a quill to write. So she would have, you know, somebody would have gone out in the backyard and caught the goose (laughs) and got a feather out of it and cut, you know, as we all did as children, I suppose, tried to make a nib out of it. Given that, it's pretty good. She might also, I think, have had to make her own ink. You know, right. she would have had a, a black powder that you would mix up, I imagine. It Gosh. was quite a business. She she often talks about how, you know, writing a letter involved quite a bit of logistics. Yeah. You yeah. didn't always have time.
2: I want to go back to the blushing moment because I, I think it's fascinating the way it serves as the kind of genesis for both of these books. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, after I read Elizabeth MacArthur's letters, I'm currently reading Oscar and Lucinda, and there's this moment when Oscar meets Lucinda and she's blushing, and there's this wonderful talk about the mechanics of blushing, and and you do a similar thing in that it, it may lead us into one conclusion but, in fact, indicate another. The other thing that I found just recently was in the current monthly there's an essay by Helen Elliott about Elena Ferranti, this little line that I wanted to try on you. Literary patrimony is essentially male and its nature doesn't provide true female sentences. Can you talk to us a little bit about the femaleness of these letters and perhaps your relationship to the letters?
3: Mm, Interesting, and interesting that you mentioned Elena Ferrante. I'm one of the school of thought that has a funny feeling that Elena Ferrante might actually be a man which would be uh-huh. a hugely interesting meta, <laughs> layers yes. of meta on top of all that, uh, very much for stylistic reasons. Actually, we, we won't go there. The thing about these letters is that they were public documents. That's the most important sort of frame to put around them, I think, when you're reading them. A letter in those days, it was a big deal to write it and it was a big deal to send it. And once it arrived from the other end of the world, which was like Mars, you know, like a letter coming from someone mm-hmm. on Mars, It would have been shared around the parlour. It would have been read to the neighbours. It was very much a public document, not a a private one. So what we might expect of a letter is not generally there except between the lines, which to me makes it more interesting than if all this stuff was on the lines. You have to put her letter together with the circumstance under which it was written, which was living with a dominant most of the time, a dominant, not to say bullying, husband who would have read at least some of her letters. We know that they read each other's letters probably quite quite routinely. So in that sense, the notion of femaleness becomes a notion of what Elizabeth MacArthur thought would be appropriate as a document to be read in public. Women were forced to lead such narrow lives Who she was really as a woman only emerges now and again, like in the the blush comment. It arose because she she asked uh, Lieutenant Dawes for lessons in astronomy and she says, I mistook my abilities and I blush at my error. But she also talks about William Dawes several other times in slightly romantic ways as being this mysterious figure off in his observatory, not often visible to mortal eyes. I'm not the only writer who has picked up the little erotic charge in all that. So to me, that sort of very female revelation of feeling is the mask slipping. It's her actually making a mistake. Just for a moment, she comes out from behind the rather neutral woman who is not going to complain about anything.
2: The other animating force that you make very clear in, in the book is loneliness. And there's two little references that I had underlined a lot on the way through. One is she says, however much I may want female society, she then goes on about John MacArthur, and then also this one, the latter was not in my power, having no female friend to unbend my mind to, nor a single woman with whom I could converse with any satisfaction to myself.
3: Mm, mm. Well, for the first couple of years that she was in Sydney, there was only one other woman of her social rank and therefore the only woman that she was kind of supposed to talk to, who was the wife of the clergyman. And she described somewhere else that Mrs Marsden is someone in whose company I find neither profit nor pleasure. Now, it was Mm. phrases like that where you suddenly get this sharp, witty, shrewd, quite cynical, tough woman to whom, you know, you think, ah, oh, yeah, I know just what you mean and that's a fabulous way of putting it. That's what got me writing these putting the letters together, to try and salvage those bits of that voice. She must have been extremely lonely, lack of female company. Her class, uh, not because she herself was a, a, a lady, but she was married to an officer, I mean, a very junior officer. So, you know, the class system, well, we know all about that. Now, whether she actually had conversations with other people that she just doesn't... Talk about. I think that's quite likely. So again, it's one of those things where you have to take what she says with a tiny pinch of salt, which makes reading the letters. That's the interesting part about them: using your own your own interpretation of what she's said to actually hear the subtext.
2: Yes, and, and that takes me to this discussion of truth. That I, I tried to sort of map out how truth and fiction work here. That in one sense, the letters are the truth behind. A Roommate of Leaves, which is fiction. On the other hand, the letters are a peculiar version of the truth because Elizabeth MacArthur is, is threading some fiction into her reports back to home in order to reassure people or in order to maintain her standing. So truth weaves in and out of this. It's an archival source and yet it's not entirely honest.
3: As no archival source should be taken at face value. I mean, I started thinking about it back in about 2002 when I came across that blush letter. And from the very beginning, I thought this is going to be a story about false stories. And for all those years that I was thinking about the book, I thought it will be called Do Not Believe Too Quickly because it was very evident to me as soon as I started reading her letters that they were in fact, or at least this is what I thought, a sustained piece of fiction. Over 60 Mm. years she had written these Beautiful lies back home, or not necessarily lies, but she had just shaped the truth so that it wouldn't upset people and it wouldn't reveal her too much. It took me a long time to get to the book because I didn't know how to tell the story. But when I realized that I could play with that idea of fiction by inventing a memoir that this real woman had, you know, purportedly left, I could suddenly see how I could make the book not just about Elizabeth MacArthur, interesting though she is but about this whole bigger question of truth and how much should we take at face value anything we read or hear, which seemed to me very much an issue of our times where, you know, we all know about what's going on with extraordinary stories being put forward with a kind of convincingness and being believed.
2: Yes, and and you can expand the microcosm of Elizabeth MacArthur and, and her truth, all the way, as you say, to what we experience now. But in a limited sense, it's also the story of colonisation, isn't it, that there's a whole series of polite fictions that are disguising some very ugly truths. And, and that's that's the case in her life.
3: Yes, absolutely. And that was the heart of it. I mean, I was interested in Elizabeth MacArthur, but always in the back of my mind there is this thing about what stories should we non-Indigenous Australians tell? What can we tell that are not perpetuating the falsehoods, and there are lots of ways of doing that, but in this book I, I thought I'm going to take as the kind of central, in a way the central metaphor, a story that has been told, it was probably begun by John MacArthur, who's a man I don't trust him as far as I could throw him.
2: Um, Would you not have put him on the $2 note, Kate?
3: <laughs> no, what a wasted opportunity. Elizabeth! <laughs> Elizabeth should be there. <laughs> At least he's not on the $5 note. At least he dropped off when the $2 note went. So, yeah, the the whole issue of the stories that the settlers told each other about the Indigenous people, I mean, they, they told terrible and self-serving lies about the Indigenous people to make it okay for, you know, my lot, basically, to take, to steal an entire continent and they did that in the in the time-honoured way. I mean, you know, Hitler did the same thing. You make them not quite human. You make the other not quite human, and then it's okay to do all sorts of things. In the case of Elizabeth MacArthur, she would have been within earshot of an event that's called the Battle of Parramatta. It's supposed to be a, a group of Aboriginal warriors who came and attacked the township of Parramatta, which was the best-armed garrison in the colony at the time. It's highly unlikely that they would have been so foolish. I read and read and read the account of the Battle of Parramatta and I thought this is fiction. There may be some speck of truth in that, but basically it's fiction, and yet this story has been handed down now for 250 years. Let's look at it. Let's take it apart, deconstruct it. Let us not believe too quickly because that is fundamental to the whole colonial project, to tell certain stories by which it is okay oh, they didn't use the land, they just walk all over it, they're just nomads, that whole, all those stories that justify colonialism, we need to undo them all whenever we see them.
2: Yeah, there's a a beautiful passage in one of the letters that I I think this is maybe the reason you included this particular letter about Doringa and her baby. And the letter says, Mrs Colby, whose name is Doringa." brought in a newborn female infant of hers for me to see about six weeks since. It was wrapped up in the soft bark of a tree, a specimen of which I have preserved. It is a kind of mantle, not much known in England, I fancy. And then she talks with real tenderness about the baby and the mantle and the mother. But as you point out, that's one of the very, very few tender references. And a lot of the time, her attitude is significantly
3: harder than that. Look, I think it's a matter of time when she wrote that and met Daringa and she would have met a lot of other Indigenous people with Mr Dawes, who was, of course, studying their language and got very close to a, a group, I think. When she did that, she still assumed that they would be there for a couple of years, make some money, John MacArthur get a few promotions and then they go back to their real life in England. Now, if you're a visitor, everything is exotic. You can feel very warm and companionable about everything and you can be genuinely very affectionate and respectful of Daringa and her baby. There are not that many references to the Indigenous people in her letters, and I think the next one is many years later when she's now established as a pastoralist on a big chunk of land that she's taken from the Indigenous people. One of her workers is speared, and she is then quite harsh and describes them as savages and shows absolutely no understanding that these are people defending their homeland. So I think that's because at that stage she knew that her life was going to be here. She was not just a visitor, she was here to stay and she wanted this land and those Indigenous people wanted it too for very good reasons and so obviously there was going to be conflict. This is my reading of her psychology about that, but it simply changed over time.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm really interested in your assessment of Elizabeth because you say... I think in the introduction you say words to the effect that she turned up in your Secret River research but she wasn't of direct relevance at the time. But perhaps as many writers experience, she's one of those characters who just keeps knocking and demands to be heard. Early on in in one of the prefaces you say that you found her unattractive at first. But can you talk about how your attitude to Elizabeth evolved as, as you read and read and read?
3: Yes, okay. So the blush letter was the first thing, and I thought, oh, fantastic. You know, we have the stereotype of the straight laced 18th-century ladies. Here she is, probably unwittingly, confessing to a real sexual attraction to this guy that she's not married to. That's fantastic. There's a story there. And then when I went and looked at more letters, my heart sank because not only were, they, were there very few bits like that in the ones I happened to be reading then, But also there was this discouraging lack of perception about privilege that she had, a discouraging lack of insight actually into how lucky she was, how undeservedly lucky she was not to be, for example, a convict. I mean, she lived among the convicts. She never refers to them. I kept putting the book away, but you're right. There's sometimes that a character just keeps knocking and I think it's because I could see that she herself was only going to be a vehicle for what I considered a bigger project about a sort of an idea rather than her she did keep knocking and I can remember the morning that I woke up thinking oh I know how to tell this story I'm going to pretend that I found her secret memoir in which she says all the stuff that isn't in the letters and I found it in an attic somewhere and all I've done is transcribe and edit it and I'm just presenting it as a historical sort of document what a nice layering of of stuff that will be And that was quite late on in the piece. The book actually wrote itself fairly quickly after I'd discovered that. And at that point, I put aside the the fact that I found her, I did use the word unattractive. It's mainly in that complete lack of insight into what she was doing to the Indigenous people. And also, you know, living with the convicts who had a rotten time. That's not nice. She was clearly, I mean, obviously, she was a person of her times. We can't in a way, judge her for that, but as I've said somewhere else in the book, others of her time did understand what they were doing to the Indigenous people, Governor King, for example, and I think I say she could have had a more humane attitude and I wish she had because then I could have liked her wholeheartedly.
2: But the balance is, isn't it, that um, equally she suffered a lot. She she suffered the deaths of children. Um, She suffered from long absences of children and this, the, the incipient madness of John. She had a pretty hard run of it in a lot of ways.
3: She did. She absolutely did. Yes, the deaths of the children would have been ghastly. Living with John MacArthur would have been pretty ghastly. <laughs> On the other hand, I mean, nobody's life is one thing or the other, are they? No. including, including no. hers. What she had was a most extraordinarily unusual thing for a woman of her time when John MacArthur went to England the first time for four years the second time for seven or eight I think I've got the numbers roughly right long chunks of time she was left in charge of what was then a gigantic pastoral industry like being a CEO of a big company now at that time women you know were not allowed to own property they couldn't work there were other wives and everything they had belonged to their husband. Or they were widows, which was probably one of the better options, actually, but they were kind of, you know, pitied and, you know, let's hope a lot of them were merry. Or, of course, the most despised kind of female of all, the old maid. So Mm -hmm. she she was in this extraordinary position of not being any of those things, but being, like one of us might be these days, an independent woman running her life with kind of autonomy and authority. So I can't feel too sorry for her. She was unlucky in her choice of husband, but, gee, a lot of women then had it much worse.
2: In your introduction, you say John MacArthur was clever, ruthless and energetic, and within a few years he was one of the richest and most powerful men in the colony. Not content with what he had, he constantly pushed the authorities for more and resented their efforts to curb his power. When I read that, I I started thinking about um, all of the current discussion about oligarchs, and he's classically an oligarch, isn't he? Oh,
3: how interesting. Yes, that's right. He's a sort of
2: a a, a symbiotic growth on a power structure. (laughs) That took me to what I think is is probably the most important letter in the book, which is the, the early one from 1789, which is titled An Account of the Voyage to New South Wales, and in it, we see the MacArthur's being subjected to all of these traumas on board and her efforts to justify John's behaviour, to explain away the disputes, is that the propriety of the time? Is that manners or does she sincerely back it?
3: Oh, who knows? In, in the novel, of course, I refer to that journal and in that I, I say that it's John persuading her to write an account which would be very useful in any future mm. inquiry. Right. She was a, an eyewitness. In fact, she wasn't an eyewitness. She wouldn't have seen any of the arguments. She wouldn't have been there as the woman, and she had a little baby at the time. But this 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 account would have stood as as if it were an eyewitness of a ca- account in which, of course, John's behaviour is justified. You know, his his insubordination was extraordinary. Uh, he had already had a duel with one of the of the original captain of the of the ship had a duel with him before they even, you know, set off. Uh, that captain was replaced with another one who obviously John MacArthur provoked him and his commanding officer, Nepean, he had to be the kingpin, John MacArthur. He couldn't bear anybody else to be doing anything. And I may be completely wrong about this, but I think that's why it was written. She wrote it more or less at his request. She's too smart and too shrewd, as is obvious from other parts of her letters, to have been completely taken in when he came down to the cabin and said, oh, such and such happening and this person was really mean to me and blah, 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 some part of her must have thought, but I know how irascible you are, how unreasonable you are. I'm going to take this with a pinch of salt. I've often said if ever I did a Ouija board thing, uh, <laughs> Elizabeth MacArthur is the person I would just try to ask for, for to be summoned.
2: <laughs> um, now, I, I think I've caught you doing an Elizabeth MacArthur in your own prefaces, two references to John. The first one says he was promoted to paymaster to the regiment, giving him control of a large amount of capital to invest. And then a few pages further on, you refer again to his access to the regiment's funds. mm -hmm. Are you suggesting that he was embezzling their money?
3: Ah, Look, yes, but I gather it was fairly common at the time.
2: That's such a disappointing answer. Some,
3: some, some contemporary is described as keeping the regiment's money in two safe places, his left pocket and his right pocket. <laughs> <laughs> to be paymaster of the regiment was more or less, I think, to be given, I, embezzle is too, too strong a word, it's a kind of a modern concept. I think if you were, you had this huge amount of capital and I think it was one of the perks of the job that you could invest it. And I presume there were people who were caught out in investing it and losing it. That I don't know enough about the history of that, but he did it and it seems utterly shocking to us and it is pretty shocking, but probably it wasn't quite as shocking back then. But it certainly let him import vast quantities of rum, he and the other officers, which is, of course, why he fell foul of the governors who did their level best to stop it. He destroyed one governor after another, every governor that was sent out, who, of course, tried to clean up the rum business. John MacArthur just destroyed them systematically one by one.
2: The, the reading experience here with your prefaces and the letters side by side, I found that you clearly have developed over time an acute sensitivity to the, to the letter-writing conventions of the era, that you can see what's going on underneath the surface and that as the reader I became very reliant on your prefaces as I went along so that I'd come to a letter and I'd ask myself okay what are we looking for here and you would helpfully tell me that suggestibility you must now be long past that point because you know how Elizabeth's talking but I, I guess this is comment more than question it's interesting for the reader to be guided to the crucial bit.
3: Yes, and maybe, I mean, several times in my my prefaces I've said, look, I may be wrong about this. This is, mm. this is how I read it. Another person may read it differently, and I think that's absolutely true. I have my own frame around those letters, and I did want to present them. I mean, they are heavily edited, and many people could say, well, you know, what have you left out? This is not really Elizabeth's voice, but uh, anyway, that's that was my choice. Yeah, so I think the conventions of letter writing, I think what is really behind it is not so much a knowledge of the conventions of 18th century letter writing. As my training, I did an English degree at the time when what we were taught was something called close reading. It was almost like deconstructing a sentence. You know, if the passive voice is used, that's a very powerful indication that somebody is concealing something. They don't want to say it. They're putting it in the passive voice. So that kind of looking at grammar and punctuation and syntax and word order, looking at that and seeing what it means almost psychologically. It's almost like (laughs) Mm psychoanalyzing the actual texture, the choice of how the words have been put together. And I love that. It's very out of fashion now, but back at Sydney University in 1971 or 72, (laughs) I loved it. And it's lovely to return to that.
2: You point out In the book that what we're missing in the record is all of Elizabeth's correspondence with John during his absences, which were very sustained absences, that must mean that to some extent our understanding of their relationship is a reconstruction. If you were to invent that correspondence, how does it go? How does she sound in that correspondence?
3: I don't know. I I, I have thought and thought about it and I did, it did cross my mind in the novel to kind of, you know, invent some of that. I don't know because the one letter that we have from her to her husband is very hard to read. And I've said in in the book, I don't know how to read this. You can read it ironically that she's, you know, exaggerating her praise of her husband, or you can read it at face value. She loves her husband and she's praising him. Uh, Now, the letters that she wrote to him must have been fairly evasive, I think, about business things because he often says, You haven't told me this, that and the other. You know, why don't you tell me this? Why don't you tell me that? His own letters, of course, are fascinating and I'm sort of surprised that nobody's put them together because the ones to her are interesting in their variety of tones. Sometimes he's really rousing on her. Other times it's fulsome, exaggerated, rather saccharine adoration. My dearest, best beloved. And you think, oh, I don't believe you. What's Um, he done wrong? (laughs) <laughs> and then his his notes to his friends like John Piper, his male friends, are amazing. I mean, John MacArthur is an amazing Shakespearean character, man mm. with a major flaw. Very interesting. Not my book, but somebody should do it.
2: And The Descent Into Madness, of course, has a Shakespearean arc about it, doesn't it? That's
3: right, yeah. Um, Kate Grenville, what kind of correspondent are you? A bit verbose, I think. Anybody ever got all my emails, they'd want to cut out all the boring bits. <laughs> What a good question. I mean, we know that whatever we put in writing may last forever. Mm -hmm. And in my case, I write to people and some of those letters have ended up in collections, in the libraries, you know, other writers' collections. And so you write, and now I'm a little bit more cautious. I think you write a letter, you send it off to somebody, they may keep it. You have no power over, over it.
2: You are an Australian who is in the position where your letters may be
3: of significance. What do you want done with them? Oh, destroy them, please. Please, (laughs) please, please. They're private things. I know I've delved into Elizabeth MacArthur's, I'm being a hypocrite, but please, I don't want my letters read by anybody except the person they were written for.
2: Very well. That's that's duly noted and recorded. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Kate, thanks so much for chatting to me and to us. Um, It's just lovely to have your thoughts about the book, and it's a fascinating, wonderful book. So thank
3: you. Thank you, Jock. It's been such a pleasure talking to you.
1: Jock, thank you so much for asking those questions. I was thinking, gee, could we do this every Thursday lunchtime? How gorgeous (laughs) would that be if we could just be talking about the way that we write and why we write, Kate? I I just felt like that last five minutes or so could have led on to such such a greater discussion as well. To you, Kate Grenville, what a pleasure to have your time with us today on behalf of Readings and on behalf of everyone here. Thank you so much. And to you, Jock, the journalist, Sarong, we have just been delighted by your sort of literary take on all of this and such a treat to have you as well. On behalf of Text, on behalf of Readings, thank you so, so much for joining us today. I do believe that we've had quite a treat, quite a treat. Take
0: care. Thank you all. Take care. Bye-bye. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast at our website. We'll also find all kinds of other recommendations, for books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Kelly. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you.